Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is your sneak peek for the week of November 8th. We're going to talk about the big gun case, Bruin, on our deep dive next week. And since we're focusing on that one next week, Kimberly, before we get into the sneak peek, we can talk briefly about the Texas abortion case that was argued this week on November 1st. You were in the room. What's the court going to do with the challenge to SB8, do you think? Sure. So, you know, listeners may remember that going into this argument, it really does seem like the abortion providers just need to pick up one additional vote. And that's because uh, we already had four justices say that they would have stopped the law from going into effect um, earlier when the abortion providers sought emergency relief from the court. I was looking for that one additional vote, and it seems like the abortion providers should get at least that and probably more. So Texas says that state courts, not federal courts, should be the ones to hear these challenges in the first instance. Uh, But in particular, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was pretty skeptical that the constitutional defenses could be fully litigated in state courts, and that's in part because some of these procedural barriers uh, that Texas put into the law. But I guess what I'm getting at, and, and I think the answer, because you're, you're shifting, is that you cannot get kind of global relief in the same way the pre-enforcement challenge under Ex parte Young in federal court gives you relief from the prospect that the statute will be enforced against you. And you're saying that in state court, these pre-enforcement actions do not offer that. They're That's- just on an individual by individual basis. Yes, Justice Barrett, the same way that an injunction against all individuals known or unknown in the federal court would be a remedy unknown to to that court. You've answered my question. Thanks. And then we saw some skepticism from Justice Kavanaugh as well. Now, one thing uh, that Justice Kavanaugh's questioning uh, brought up was whether or not an injunction from the Supreme Court will even help the abortion providers. It's not clear what kind of effect that will have. And that's because, you know, another one of these kind of procedural quirks in the Texas law is that it limits kind of the defenses that um, abortion providers or those who are said to aid and abet can make and specifically says that even if they provide an abortion or help aid and abet a abortion while there is a court injunction making their actions legal if that injunction is later overturned uh, then there can still be liability and so here's Justice Kavanaugh asking well what will happen if in this case the the justices are going to be hearing in December if they change the law of abortion and then Texas SB8 law seems to be constitutional. Can I just get more clarity about how you think that retroactivity provision works? Are you saying that uh, if an injunction were entered and someone, uh, some clinic performed abortions now that were then legal under current law, but the law changes in the future um, such that the state could, going forward, restrict abortions at an earlier time, are you saying that the state that could then reach back and retroactively or allow suits that would reach back and retroactively impose liability on uh, entities that were committing lawful acts as of the time? It would be private plaintiffs again, Your Honor. But, but of course, Is that a yes. Yes, Your Honor. So we've got Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, but I'm wondering, too, about Justice Thomas. He had some critical questions as well. 
Um, regardless, it does look like this is going to go the way of the abortion providers, and that may pride, provide an out for the justices to have to provide an answer to the question uh, that the Biden administration asked them to answer. In particular, the newly confirmed Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, you know, kind of said during arguments, look, if you provide a way for abortion providers to sue in this case, then, you know, the United States doesn't need to come in and get this extraordinary relief. So no word on when we might hear, but I think the outcome is pretty, um, is pretty solid. And in the meantime, though, Kimberly, the law has been in effect after the Supreme Court let it go into effect in September. So as we're sitting here recording this on November 5th, regardless of the outcome, abortion is still practically banned, or at least under the six-week ban in Texas until the court says otherwise, right? Well, even... um after the court says otherwise, we don't know. I think, um, you know, those comments that we heard from Justice Kavanaugh really cast some doubt on, you know, when abortion providers are going to feel safe to resume abortions again. Um, And I'm wondering if, you know, you know, we could get an injunction pretty quickly from the Supreme Court, followed up by an opinion later. And if, you know, I'm wondering if that injunction is going to say something about uh, that provision of the Texas law. Um, But, you know, as with everything, the Supreme Court, we just have to wait and see. So getting into the sneak peek here. First up, we have a state secrets case. Kimberly, I thought we already did a state secrets case recently. What's going on here? Right. So um, as you mentioned, this is another uh, case dealing with the state secrets privilege. Uh, that privilege allows the federal government to, um, you know, say that certain information that would be turned over in litigation would be harmful to the federal government's interests, specifically to national security. Now, back in October, as you referenced, the court heard U.S. versus Zabeda or Zubedu, as uh, Chief Justice Roberts said. We will hear argument uh, in case 2827, United States versus Zubedu. And uh, in that case, the lower court had rejected the government's assertion of privilege over information about alleged CIA black sites in Poland. Now, some supplemental briefing in that case suggests that the court might not have to get into the limits of the privilege uh, in that case at all. Um, I would expect the Supreme Court to issue something on that um, sometime later this winter. This case here is U.S. versus Vizaga. Um, I can't wait to see how the Chief Justice pronounces that. Um, So here the case centers around an FBI surveillance of a Muslim community in Southern California. Now, once the surveillance was revealed, members of that community sued the government saying that they were targeted in violation of the First Amendment simply because of their religion. Now, the federal government sought to dismiss those claims, saying that, you know, if courts were to adjudicate those issues, it would require the government to disclose information that would be harmful to national security. And even though the district court agreed and dismissed those claims, the Ninth Circuit revived them. And the Ninth Circuit in particular looked at the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which had provided a new procedure for determining whether a case does actually implicate the state secret's privilege. And under the Ninth Circuit's reading, the government must submit the information to a judge who will examine the evidence in camera or that is outside the presence of the parties and will determine what should be left 
left out of the litigation. So the Supreme Court agreed to determine whether uh, FISA displaces the former process um, in all cases dealing with the state secrets or whether it's more limited and that the court here should really just dismiss the case um, with regard to these First Amendment religious claims. And then the second case on Monday is a copyright case, Unicolors against H&M. This one deals with the standard for what copyright challengers and defenders need to show and when the Copyright Office should get involved in litigation. What happened here was that Unicolors won an infringement suit against H&M over skirts and jackets H&M was selling. H&M then said Unicolors' copyright application was inaccurate and that the Copyright Office should weigh in. The district court declined to do that because there wasn't an intent to defraud, but the Ninth Circuit said there's no intent to defraud requirement and that the Copyright Office should be asked to weigh in. So now we'll see what the Supreme Court says about that, and that could all have some big implications for copyright litigation. All right, so day two of the week on Tuesday, the justices will hear another case brought by the United States. So um, this one is United States versus Vallejo Madero. Now, in all of these cases, the one I talked about before, some of the other state secrets case, and even that abortion case, we see the United States really being the one who uh, is bringing these cases to the Supreme Court, meaning they lost in the courts below. Um, so that's an interesting note about, about this case and some of the others. Um, here, Congress has provided for supplemental Social Security benefits for certain disabled and elderly individuals. And the key to this case is that Congress extended those benefits to some territories, but not to all American citizens. So despite extending them to certain places, it did not extend them to those living in Puerto Rico. Okay, so get this. Jose Luis Vallejo Madero received these benefits originally when he was living in New York and he subsequently moved to Puerto Rico. Now, once the federal government became aware that he was now in Puerto Rico, they ended their benefits. And then they later sued him to get the benefits back that he had obtained while living in Puerto Rico. They sued him for some $28,000. Remember, this is somebody that we're talking about who is either elderly or disabled or both. I wonder how much it cost the government to sue for that $28,000. It's the principle of it, Jordan. It's the principle of it. Vallejo Madero challenged the refusal to extend benefits to some but not all territories, saying that it violated the Equal Protection Clause. Now, interestingly, the appellate court here only applied rational basis review to the law. That is, it applied the lowest level of scrutiny, which made it easier for the government to defend the law. But as we know, the United States is the uh, party asking the Supreme Court to weigh in here. So we know that the government did not win despite that low standard. Uh, here, the appellate court found that the government couldn't even satisfy rational basis review and found that the government had, in fact, violated the Equal Protection Clause by refusing to extend benefits to Puerto Rico. Now, one interesting thing to note here is that then-candidate Biden had made some comments about uh, this case while on the campaign trail during the 2020 presidential election, in which he was pretty critical of the Trump administration for defending the statute. So now we move forward to President Biden. Uh, who in June issued a statement saying that while his administration disagreed with the policy, the DOJ has a long history of defending statutes passed by Congress and would allow the DOJ to do so here. Of course, Biden was VP when the Obama administration decided not to offend or defend 
I'm sure they were offended. They decided not to defend the Defense Against Marriage Act, uh, which had defined marriage as between a man and a woman for all federal purposes. So this isn't an absolute rule, but it is something very, very rare um, that only happens once in a blue moon. Then we got another heavy one on Tuesday, Ramirez against Collier. The court here is going to try and sort out this long-running issue over the rules for what religious rights death row prisoners are entitled to when they're being executed and what restrictions the state can impose. John Ramirez wants his pastor to pray aloud and lay hands on him in the Texas death chamber when he's executed. But Texas officials oppose that, claiming security concerns. Kimberly, remember back in September when the court not only granted a stay in this case, but did something pretty surprising in setting the case for full briefing and argument, taking the case off the shadow docket and onto the merits docket, and expediting the case pretty rapidly. And now the court can clarify the issue here and perhaps eliminate one source of late-night litigation ahead of executions, but certainly won't be the end of them. So uh, this one is the City of Austin versus Reagan National Advertising, and it involves uh, an Austin sign regulation that allows business owners to digitize their signs on their business property, but not off-property signs. Uh, This relates to a 2015 Supreme Court ruling, Reed versus Town of Gilbert, which said localities can't regulate signs differently because of their content. Now, that ruling has been a really big issue for state and local governments, largely because it expanded what is considered content-based speech, and it's made it harder for localities to regulate things like signs. And we've also seen it have an effect on panhandling laws, uh, which have largely been struck down based on REIT. So state and local governments here, I think, are looking forward to this case to give them a little more guidance, uh, regardless of which way the Supreme Court goes. Um, You know, they've really been urging the court to say a little bit more about what it is exactly that makes something content-based. All right. So then that'll be it for this week. Next week, we'll do the deep dive into the gun case. Looking forward to that one. Until then, thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.